Welcome to Sweet Bitter, where we explore the untold history of women and queer pirates. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida and Lisa Charlotte. This episode is a special bonus episode where we'll be discussing the Be More Pirate movement. But before we get into that, let's welcome our resident pirate expert, Elise, just to chat. Hi, Elise. We're not playing fact or fiction. <laughs> no more fact or fiction. I'm so sad. I know, right? But I'm still happy that you're here, Elise. It's great. Even without fact or fiction, oh. I'm happy to see your face. Oh my gosh. I'm glad that you'll <laughs> accept me even without fact or fiction. <laughs> we accept you always. Always, always, always. We missed you with last episode, right? We didn't have you yeah, here. I know. It was so sad. We were like talking to uh, Elise of the past. I know. Oh, oh voice my god, I was so sick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're doing better. Yeah. Season two has been the season of COVID. We have all had Ugh. it this yep. season. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> and Ellie and I got it together. <laughs> yep. As has been pretty much most of the population. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We did a great yes, job. Yes, of course. Very relatable. <laughs> yes. Very relatable. But it's been quite a disrupted season. Thanks, everybody, for hanging in with us while we go through COVID and multiple other random <laughs> things like flooded houses and um, It has been a and time. Whatnot. Yeah. It has been has. a time. But thank you, everybody. What's been your favorite fact or fictions this season? Like your favorite pirate fact? I really like the one about peg legs. <laughs> like, and hooks for hands. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just found that to be fascinating. Also, I think we've talked about, I don't know if we talked about it during Fact or Fiction, but we talked during the season about how like different pirate ships had like a disability fund, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep, so yeah. I just think that that lent itself interestingly into talking about pirate healthcare structures yes. which you wouldn't expect like hey let's talk about hooks for hands and universal health care right so yeah that I was that really was surprising cool. to me as well the the universal health care part like okay they're doing better than uh than we're doing that's a little bit embarrassing yep <laughs> just a little <laughs> what about what about you lisa what was your favorite I don't know. I I was just trying to think about it. It's probably like there was definitely one the other day where like Reese Darby from Our Flag Means Death said something about pirates that was wrong, and I was like, "This is wrong." Oh, it was about the eye patches. I thought that was so I cool. I love the eye patches. So he was like, "Oh, because they didn't wear eye patches," and I was like, "Bitch, they did." But it's not for the reason that you thought. So hopefully, you know, our flag means stuff. Don't hate us for calling that out on Twitter. But I just had to say something because I just think it's such a cool reason to wear an eye patch, like that you go. So we got it's kind of the same episode, right? Like we talked about all of them in the same episode. But my favorite part of it was the eye patch. So that that was it for me. Pirate costuming, I mean, you know, a lot of it is yeah. pretty accurate. Yeah, exactly, and that's very important because people are out there being gay pirates all the time now. True. Elise, I know you were the one running Factor Fiction, but what was your favorite one? Mine was actually going to be the the eye patches because I always just assumed that was one of the like campy cliche, you know, Disney things because there are so many. But I really love knowing like why they wore them. I never in a million years would have known that, and I think that's really cool that they were trying to go below and above decks really quickly and had to like get their eyes used to the adjustment, and I I think that's amazing. Very, very cool. That's been my absolute favorite. Yeah. I thought that someone was going to say the rum. 
I mean, <laughs> rum is always great, but it wasn't as surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We weren't really that, that shocked about, <laughs> about the drinking. You missed That's it last true. week, at least. But like the episode, what what was it? It was like, oh, a pirate's still around. We're like, bitch, of course they are. Yeah, like that like, was not, that's not. This is not a surprise. A surprise at all. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm really excited about this episode. It's kind of random how we came across Alex, but this Be More Pirate movie is, again, pirates are still around today in real life, but also the pirate spirit is alive and well. Yes. We're going to be talking about that today. Yes. Thank you, Elise, for this entire season. We love you. For joining us at the top of the episode. Great to see y'all. We will be back after a quick break. And we're back. Today, we wanted to share the story of this amazing movement that didn't really fit into our season episodes, but we wanted to share it with you anyway. So I'm going to let Alex introduce herself. And here we go. Hi, um, I'm Alex, Alex Barker. I run Be More Pirate, which originally was a book. Oh, it is, a, it is still a book. It's written by my sort of co-pirate colleague, uh, Sam Conniff, who's a social entrepreneur and has done loads of different things. He wrote the book and published. it got published in 2018. And um, we've since evolved it into a hybrid of a social movement and a sort of anti-consultancy, let's say. Consultants that tell the truth. And it's forever evolving into all kinds of new and interesting projects. But the, the premise of Be More Pirate is, is that pirates have something to teach us about how to reorganise ourselves for the 21st century, how to challenge the status quo and rewrite the rules. And I think there's a lot of rule rewriting that needs to happen. The book kind of takes the story of the golden age of piracy, which is about 1700 to 1730, and looks at all the things that pirates pioneered in that tiny period of history and how they created a whole new way of living and working together and were far more fair and transparent and accountable to each other than we are today in so many different spaces. So so I'm going to go back to Sam's story because obviously he wrote the book and he really wrote it as a, a love letter to the young creative entrepreneurs that he'd worked with across South London for about 15 years. He set up a a youth marketing agency to sort of disrupt the dynamic of of marketing agencies. So he would get young people in from, you know, more disadvantaged backgrounds who wouldn't usually get the opportunity and get them into work on briefs from big clients like PlayStation and Netflix and Mm -hmm. essentially get their insights on what would make the products work. Um, And at the same time, they ran a network which would help young people get into creative, the creative industries. So he was doing that for, you know, 15 years or so. They were doing really well. It was a social enterprise, which meant that, you know, it was a kind of business for good model and they were winning awards and all this stuff. But at the same time, Sam just felt like nothing really is changing. Inequality is still growing. I mean, it's very much the same over in the US as it is here in the UK. So 2016, when this reached ahead for him, and he started to write the book, because, you know, we had this big polarization in society um, around democracy and, and what it meant, what, what the future was really going to look like. And, and he just felt like all his work that he'd been doing for all this time wasn't really amounting to anything. He wasn't really making that much of a difference. And so the the book was simultaneously a love letter to those young people who'd always inspired him but also a venting of frustration about what was going wrong and i think a very, a very much a challenge to the engine of business like the, the underlying business model which is built on exploitation and extraction and and also the vacuum of imagination at leadership level that leaders who weren't really understanding the problems they were trying to solve they weren't close enough to them and it was letting everyone down 
and he just was looking for different inspiration somewhere else. And he, the, the funny story around it is he, he took, he initially was writing this book called Purpose First, which is a quite a boring sounding business book. <laughs> and he just said, uh, he took it to work, he workshopped it with groups of young people as he'd always done with any idea and took it to them and said, you know, what do you think of this? And they were like, it's, it's bloody boring. That's what we think. You know, this isn't, this is also not you, you know, where's all the fireworks and rockets and pirates that you usually come with and Sam just wrote it down like where are all the pirates and then went back to that note and and actually just began exploring the history of piracy and say why do I always use the pirate metaphor when I'm talking about change and I'm talking about what it means to disrupt things and and so he then just fell into all this history this amazing these amazing stories of real life characters who'd really stood up and challenged something and 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 fell in love with it, I think. So that's where the story from the, the research in the book came from. And then obviously he he tried to look into modern examples of what he would consider to be piracy, like piracy for good. So where are people really disrupting things in that respect? And that they, those examples made it into the original book. But where I come in, first of all, when he launched the book, he pulled off quite a lot of stunts to A, live the rebellious spirit of the book and, and challenge the publishing industry, which is also quite outdated at times. And as a result, the book did really well and people started to read it, which I think was, is the sort of thing authors don't always realise. They're like, oh, people are now going to engage with me. Writing things like this book really resonates. It's I've, I'm taking it quite seriously and I've now quit my job and I'm starting a social enterprise and they detach their resignation letter. Or, you know, I'm starting a mutiny at work as advised in your book. And he, <laughs> and he was like, oh, shit, um, what do I do with this? So he kind of got, a, you know, at the beginning, got a bit overwhelmed with the interest and the idea that there was a movement forming around the book. It wasn't just readership. And that's when he hired, decided to hire some help in the form of a right-hand pirate. That was what he advertised for. So that was what I responded to. And I responded because I was really disillusioned myself. I was really fed up. I kind of reached the same conclusions that Sam had, that where we were heading in the kind of social change space here in the UK, which, you know, is a amount of lot a lot of social enterprises a lot of charities who believe they're doing a good thing and and largely are come in with very good intention but the change wasn't radical enough you know over time things get co-opted by the mainstream and become quite institutionalized and i was definitely working in a space that felt very that way i felt that actually i was putting so much red tape around some of the things we could and couldn't do and following all these tiny quite pointless rules that i was inhibiting people's ability to really do anything bigger and and I just I couldn't understand necessarily what my purpose was anymore so I took a break from that job and it was when I was on a little yeah this little hiatus that I came across Be More Pirate I didn't initially respond that well to it because I felt that it looked a bit clickbaity and a bit you know a bit, bit of a big promise of change and I again I said I was just disillusioned with all of that so it was only when I saw the job advert that I went back and read it properly that I, you know, felt there was something in this. And it was to do with the storytelling because my background was, I'd studied literature and then studied politics. And I think the marrying of those two things where you bring a, a political narrative to life with a really powerful, motivating, interesting story that has romance and drama and but it, has a, but it has a serious message underneath it. And that's what pirates had. And I was so bored of all these frameworks about change and and the way that they were presented. And my previous job was in communications as well. So I could see how I could see how I could take all the learning from my old work and, and bring it to this in a new way. But I didn't I didn't come into it with <laughs> with with the 
total enthusiasm, I did say to Sam, you know, what about this? And I challenged him on quite a few points in his job description. And I think he, and that's what he liked. He said, here's someone who isn't going to take things at face value. And that's what you're looking for in a pirate, really. They were sensible challenges. <laughs> and he said, I don't know who my community is yet. And I need to find out. So yeah, so that, that was the beginning of the journey, really. And the first thing we did was hold a, a meetup on London's only real pirate ship. It's, it's a, a real life replica of it is moored by London Bridge. So we decided to hold a meetup on there. Where's the American Be More pirate movement? Like, where's oh, our pirate? That will, that will come later. It will come later. <laughs> where is our but- pirate ship meetup, Lisa? <laughs> I want a pirate That's ship meetup. definitely come a little later in the story. It's really cool. Like, I love this as someone who has been at a lot of, like, entrepreneurial things. And I know this is something that we have, like, frequently discussed and for me personally, so when I, so my degree obviously was terrorism. I have always tried to make like a terrorism like case for business. I mean, not not be terrorist, but like the fact that you have this group groups existing outside of society. They're often pursuing really entrepreneurial things, and I've actually tried to pitch this idea to conferences as like a speaking thing to be like, hey. I want to talk about what we can learn from terrorist organizations. And you know what? People really weren't they, as yeah, people, yeah, people don't want to. That's so so strange that people don't. I mean, I understand, but, I understand what yeah. you're saying, though. I think you, yeah. but I think that you need to repackage it. Cause, as pirates. Because pirates, apparently. like, yeah, if you repackage it as pirates, people will be like, oh, you say the exact same thing. Exactly. Yes. And that's the thing is, like, we've talked a lot this season about how pirates and terrorism, terrorist groups are, like, kind of similar in a way. I mean, terrorist groups are more ideological, actually, than pirates in many ways. But, uh, yeah, it's just this idea that, like, you can take something that is, like, bad, but there are a lot of lessons we can learn, like, I, ISIS is great at at marketing campaigns and and all of that. Like they do great. So like, okay, what can we learn? So I actually, I, I almost did a podcast about this, but I think it would be a very niche niche listenership of people who would actually have an open enough mind to listen to that. So I was really excited to hear about this group. But I'll let Alex tell us more about it. I was very interested in in thinking about how it operates as a network because, like I said. In my previous job, I was in the team that had a big membership. So it was like, an, it was about growing a network and creating um, it's almost like smaller groups within that network. But I didn't think that it was necessarily working optimally. And so when I was thinking about being on Pirate, I was like, how do I make this work in the, in the best possible way? And I described the network as like a fleet. <laughs> so like a fleet of ships. And that it really is just a series of, of captains. So, so very strong characters who've really internalized the philosophy and are then able to translate that and mo- mobilize a group of their own that they know and understand and are close to. So I'm not going to go into every single, you know, healthcare provider and talk about being more pirate. Sometimes we do, but really it spreads through the people who are in those spaces already going, this is what we need to change. And and the way that they have cotton on to be more pirate has usually been through a kind of catalyst moment in their own life. So for example, those moments when people have written and said, yeah, I, I'm quitting my job or my job's made me redundant, or it's been, you know, a point of crisis for the whole organization. There's a few stories in our follow-up book that detail that, the, the kind of moment you, I guess, decide you're going to be more pirate about it and not just sink. And the the line that from the book, the original book that is repeated back is 
when it when people talk about that moment is is no one is coming to save you it's almost like the moment of agency and when it and when they give themselves that permission to suddenly chart a different course because you've realized that whatever system or institution or leader that you've been relying upon for some kind of plan or stability isn't there for you you know it's up to you that's exciting and good for a lot of people so that the, the reliance on the people who've got such a strong emotional connection to the, the brand and the book and the ideas that's how it's spread really and me being able to tell their stories in other spaces where it will relate and resonate so once i get asked i will quite often get asked by a an organization to come in and talk and i only talk about the real life experiences um of the people in our community and how they've dealt with change and what it means to be more private from their perspective because Again, what I was disillusioned with was the idea that you just come in and go, this is theoretically how it, how change works. Actually, you know, it's bloody hard to rebel, like when you've got five layers of management above you or, or whatever it is, pressures and mortgages to pay. And so I always wanted to be able to tell people how you do it in a realistic way. We've got a, one of the first pirate school I describe is in Australia. You think they're an alternative studio school. They've really, the head teacher's like, fully committed pirate and you know they talk very openly and honestly about the normalizing forces of the education system and having to certainly adhere to certain things but they're very committed we've got a crew in the u.s just thinking that you know the big sort of english-speaking countries the obvious first places it would spread that we got a crew of coaches in the u.s um i did a coaching course with them last year but they were already using be more pirate as kind of required reading and then i did the course with them and got and ended up you know networking and making friends with many of them and they're all about sort of looking at it from a mindset personal development angle and challenging your own norms and your inner beliefs and the stories that we hold and how you kind of break your own rules first before you maybe go out and do something with it which I think is a really important part of the equation and there's been like there's been many we've had so many opportunities to go and speak at things abroad that we've definitely ignited little crews elsewhere there's a guy who is based out in spain who does a lot of work around design and education in design he's you know and challenging how design education is he's run a few conferences he's very committed pirate so that i can think of many one of our core pirates is now based in berlin it is an international movement i can proudly say very cool i love this international fleet so who are some of the pirates there's a woman called Francisca Elmer. I should say Dr. Francisca Elmer. She is technically a, she's a, a marine biologist, reef, reef specialist. And she was teaching, she's Swiss, but she was teaching in the Caribbean, teaching students about the coral reefs, um, trying to focus her her lectures more on climate change over time. But it was only when she read Be More Pirate that she kind of got like that kick up the ass. It was like, wow, I'm not really doing as much as I could. I'm not recognizing the, the urgency of this. And I don't think... Mm, my sector is either i don't think any of us are really stepping up to the plate here we are the people who should be talking about this the most we're we're seeing the literal impact of it day in day out and so every four years they hold a coral reef conference somewhere in the world where all the scientists come together and they share their research and it goes out on this big email list to about five thousand scientists when that went out in 2019 she decided that she's like i I don't think this is how we should be doing it. We can't all fly to a climate conference. When we're talking, we're saying that flying is one of the core reasons that this damage is being done. And, th- and she said, this is it was the line in the book, you know, what will I stand up and fight for? She's like, it, it's this, it's got to be the climate crisis. And so what can I do? And we all in our 
when I was analysing how people had re- responded to to be more pirate in the second book, there's a whole chapter on this idea of small bold actions that you don't need to be overwhelmed with the scale of the problem, which is pretty easy with something like climate change. And she's just like, what can I do right now that's accessible and easy, um, but will disrupt something? And she just said she just wrote. She said no one would dare call it out. Uh, this peer group of us all. And she said she says we shouldn't be doing it this way. And does anyone else agree with me? And what she proposed instead was to run localized education-based events where they could stream and share it more with the, the with the wider community, engage local NGOs, university students, etc. And yeah, she got a response. She started to hear from other people saying, actually, I, I agree. I think we should be doing it this way. We'll get more, we'll actually get more traction, particularly people who were living in countries in the global south who couldn't really afford to go to the conference anyway, or it was a stretch. So she was getting a lot of traction in countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and they started to form this little network. And again, it speaks to the idea that the networks achieve scale through collaboration. And that was what the pirates did, finding your kind of allies in in that way, rather than always working from this centralized organization. So they started to to just organize. And then, then they started to make their events and they called it the same name as the conference, the main conference. And then, of course, the organizer of the main conference sort of said, well, I'm not sure you can do that, gave them their no. And she said, I still want to work with them. And I think that's a really key point about being pirate. Like, it's not an out and out, it's not always an out and out challenge to the system. It's, it's, it's usually quite strategic. So it's, there is a sense of like, well, we're going to go over here and create something better than what you've got. And you can either join us and get on board with it. Or we will we will just carry on anyway, and we will end up in conflict. And she just kind of outlined why it was better, and said, "We'll work. We'll work. We want to work in collaboration, but I'm not going to stop." Interestingly, the pandemic interrupted their whole ch- their whole challenge because the main conference couldn't go ahead anymore. But they did manage to do all the online stuff that they were going to do locally anyway. So, yeah, it felt like it. It kind of it married up a lot of the ideas around figuring out your initial kind of North Star purpose, um, the part of, you know, the idea of the pirate code, what's driving you here, taking small, a small bold action that galvanizes a mutiny into a kind of almost like a movement. And then she kind of found her her network through it. And she's created a new norm for that conference. I doubt that they will, they will now go ahead any year without the ability to organize at a local level as well as just having the central conference. This is something that like, drives me wild about climate conferences. I have been to one in Minneapolis, which I flew to from New York. And there were people there who had flown from New Zealand and Australia for like four days to go to this conference. And I was like, y'all, y'all, you see the problem here. Like it's, it's so wild that we think that like flying to a place and talking about climate change for four days is better than just like jumping online. You know, I, I was really happy to hear this story. I love that too, because it is like you are being actionable. Like your everything you do is like based on this ideology, like state like taking it as a pirate, right? Like you have your climate code, your mm-hmm. climate code, I like that, instead of your pirate code. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, live everything by that code. Make exactly make everything work through that code. As like difficult as that is within our society. You're living outside the society to change it. Yes, 100%. And like, look, with climate change, ultimately, 
the only way that we're going to actually have change is if big corporations change their behavior. I, I am definitely like I, you know, been vegetarian for a very long time. I do think that everybody does their part. I'm very like, you know, renewable things and like try to live a low waste life. And like realistically living in New York, like in an apartment is like pretty economical living, though I do fly a lot for work. But like I sort of don't subscribe to the idea that one person individually is going to like change everything. I think you just take reasonable steps, right? Like I'm not going to not take this job because I have to travel for work, for example. I yes. like need to live my life over here. But I think that if you all take reasonable steps to try and, you know, do things, but ultimately it's corporations that are going to have to make the changes and governments and whatnot. Like we're just people, but well, uh, and the part- sorry, I just want to throw that in there. I didn't want to make people yes, feel like they individually yes. had to like solve this problem. Um, and the, pi- anyway, the pirates are going to have to take over those corporations <laughs> <Yes>. and change it. <laughs> yes. I am really interested, though, in how Be More Pirate implements actual pirate history in their movement. So Alex mm-hmm. is going to talk a little bit about that now. In terms of understanding what it means to be pirate, I did a lot of thinking about that. Like Because mm. obviously we have the preconceptions about pirates. Obviously we have... We also have a sort of modern version of what a pirate is in respect of how we organize today. And I think we've, we see think of them as embodying that that disruptor rebel persona, um, which they do, but they are also 50% about collaboration and crew. And I always try and drive that fact home. It's 50% rebellion, 50% collaboration, because a, a pirate didn't exist outside of a crew. And, and very much part of that is exactly what you said about holding power to account I would like to describe pirates as the opposite of the mafia. Like, if, whereas a mafia, as a in terms of two criminal organisations, and they definitely were criminals, uh, or they are criminals operating outside of the law. You know, the mafia is, is literally driven by fear and violence, whereas pirates did uh, everything to prevent that from from being how they work. So, yes, voting in a captain or a quartermaster. The the idea they had the idea of dual governance in order to stop a a captain abusing some of the powers he might have you had a a quartermaster who was the voice of the crew and the quartermaster would look after things like the punishment and the money so if a person violated the code they would get some kind of punishment but it would be dealt with not by the captain but the quartermaster so you couldn't have things like favoritism and, and things and of course both the captain and the quartermaster could always be voted in and out and it's what i describe as that situational leadership so you're never the leader forever or you couldn't, you might not be. You're only in the leader insofar as your skills and your direction, your strategy is, is approved by the people you're serving. So it's a very much like a server servant relationship to to the people that you're above, in theory above, but you're not really in that in that respect. So I think pirates have a lot to teach us because we've almost reversed that today. We don't have, you know, when I talk to local councils or which is I don't know what the equivalent is in the US, but local government here and you explain that you could you don't just get voted in once you could be voted out at any time which means you can't just take liberties they are shocked that that was in existence on a pirate crew and it was really about you know partly about preventing conflict and mutiny so relatively non-violent but it was also about recognizing that people weren't expendable in the way that they were in the navy you'd gone from a situation where because you know most pirates were originally sailors in the navy so they'd come they had a lot of maritime expertise you know in in modern terms we probably say that they probably describe them all as having some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder because of such terrible working conditions and so they had this opportunity to create something totally in in total opposition to that so fair pay 
um, not allowing the captain and the quartermaster to have much more than the crew members. You know, you'd get more if you had more responsibility or more risk associated with your role. So again, a very situational sort of approach to leadership and organising. You know, social insurance or kind of healthcare system it, it, in a very microcosm sort of way. You would get compensation if you lost any limbs in battle or we were injured in any way. So um, it meant that they felt that they would looked after. And so it actually incentivized people to really go all in when it came to fighting a, a battle if they if that did happen, rather than trying to hide below deck because you knew you wouldn't be looked after. So is it almost like strategic? Because I wouldn't necessarily lay claim to it being a moral stance from the beginning. It's hard to know whether pirates were driven by a social justice agenda, although I think Black Sam Bellamy as a character definitely was. He was the one that was very outspoken on, on sort of social issues, hence they called him the Robin Hood of the Sea. Other than that, I'm not sure. Um, I think just generally in terms of diversity, again, it's a challenging the stereotype that pirates are this sort of very one-dimensional sort of character. And actually the reality is they all came from quite different backgrounds and and, and lifestyles and 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 it had different agendas so that some were you know truly bloodthirsty but m- many weren't many were quite ordinary and and some were very particularly known for like i said the social justice side and and the Anne, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed being the most famous female pirates and also being queer at least as as much as it, it's it's highly likely based on their historical literature that they were in a relationship as lo- as well as being in a relationship with men at particular times of their life. I, I'd imagine that piracy gave people a level of permission and freedom that they could never ever have comprehended within the social structures of the day. And and that's that's brilliant. I think the thing I like about pirates the most is that they will they can honour the individual and the collective at the same time. When people ask me, is, you know, the last typically is a particular political leader a, a pirate because they're breaking the rules. And I'm like, if you think that their immediate crew will vote them out, would would vote them out at the first chance, then, then probably not because it was about, you, could, you can never elevate an individual's. So you want to have that individuality and obviously allow people to be who they really are in a way that they couldn't be, but you can't elevate them above the well-being of the group that's when you get obviously tyranny and things so i love that balance i think it's it's just such a good principle and a simple principle to to think about when you're organizing a society or group or anything this has come up a million times over the season but it still just gets to me every time i love this line pirates honor the individual and the collective at the same time and equally so right like pirates as this like egalitarian democracy that we don't mm-hmm. have, like, as much as we want to say, like, we have democracy. Nope. We do not have, like, egalitarian democracy. We have much more of an no. oligarchy that, that like, disguises itself, at, pretends to be a democracy. So that's just my, that's my rant, yeah. but. And I think the idea of what is, like, collective freedom, like, what is individual freedom? And I think that's something that I always find really interesting when I speak to Americans about something like healthcare, for example. And they're like, well, I want the freedom to choose and I'm like you don't really have a choice cuz your your healthcare is now tied to your employment because it's prohibitively expensive and you don't have a choice to change jobs for example if you have a health issue or if you're pregnant or whatever 
Um, and so the idea of this as like individual freedom is not really like you don't have individual freedom without collective yes. buy-in. So I really like that too. We talked a bit about terrorism, obviously, because I always will. And I, of course, as the interviewer of Alex, talked about terrorism with Alex. And so I'm going to let her chat about that. I suppose the other the only other point I would make on on piracy in general, as we sort of touched on it when you mentioned terrorist organizations and what we can learn from them, and I and I definitely agree with that, um, particularly on on sort of building networks and connections and um, a networked approach to change. But I do like to have a to challenge people on the difference between legality and morality because just because pirates were criminals didn't mean necessarily that they were doing anything wrong and like that people find that very difficult as a concept to because they did do things that were wrong but i would say that it was wrong within the context of the time and everybody was violent it was the only way you were able to really survive to some degree and there were certainly some areas much less violent and i think it's useful to try to imagine that concept and, and transpose it into today because there's so many things that we that are legal but not necessarily moral that happen. I'm in the middle of designing a program for sort of 18 to 25 year olds um, just to try and capture a slightly younger audience because interestingly even though the book was inspired by young people the audience we've had have been tend to be sort of older professionals who are very frustrated <laughs> with, <laughs> with how things are but I wanted to do something for a younger audience just because I think the rules, the rules, the norms that we have get entrenched very quickly. And so giving people a different perspective and a historical narrative and framework to think about could be useful and definitely an alternative to some of what might get taught in schools. You know, we've got to question history and recognise that some of those stories get buried and they get buried for a reason. So, and, and part of that is going to be about giving them sort of moral dilemmas and scenarios to think about in relation to what what are the rules? What do rules really mean? Who created them? Why did they create them? How did we end up with what we've ended up with? And then, you know, start to decide for yourself. I mean, privilege, perspective, precedent are all reasons why a rule gets created. And so don't just take things as a given, you know? I mean, the biggest of all the arguments we have around how the economy is constructed. And it's it's literally bonkers that we Imagine that we can't change the economy, which is a man-made construct, but we ignore the limitations of the natural world. And that frustrates me a lot because that is finite. I find this really interesting because I feel like I accidentally taught myself this <laughs> because I first got into university when I was 17 and I was just far too young. And so I dropped out and I like went and like sort of forged my own path and I didn't end up getting my degree until I was 30. So my university experience was very different. And then I just never did that, like, get out of uni job that a lot of people do, I think, where a lot of these norms get reinforced, yeah, impressed upon you. Yeah. And I find it, it's a really big asset in business in my career because I think very differently from people around me because I don't have those sort of, like, precedent experiences. And I'm working for, like, 
a client who is a really big institution now and that client like working with those people is so wild to me because the way that they think and the way that they their values are entrenched like they're all really lovely but just the way it just it fries my brain because like my neurodivergent brain who's never had to deal with an institution of that size just finds it really really challenging so i i think that it's a really big asset and i really love that yeah doing i love it too i'm like also like i would love to have been in this program when i was 18 years old i also like you Lisa I've like never worked in an office until two months ago oh wow how's it going for you it's actually good well it's also like it's still an office that like I don't have to go into every day like it's an office it's a space where I can go work but it's not an office in like the typical (laughs) place way of an office yeah so I'm like okay cool but I like I can't like I physically cannot fit into a like nine to five mold it will wreck me. Like Ellie and I, we record at 10.30 in the morning. Yeah. And Ellie and I are like always rolling out of bed. Like Elise is two, but Elise is two hours behind us. But Ellie and I are always like, this is the absolute earliest we can do anything. Yes. I don't book meetings usually before midday. I'm like, no, mornings are my time. I need to like be able to sleep until when I sleep. And I need some time to like kick my brain into gear in the morning. But But I love the, I just love the idea of like living outside of society's norms and like collaborating with other people and creating your own. That's what we did with this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Space. So we're pirates. We are pirates. Yes. So thank you, Alex, for sharing all of this with us. I hope that all of you listening are taking some some notes on how to be more pirates. Yeah, go by the book. So this is it for us for our bonus episode. Well, this is our last episode. I mean, it's not really an episode, it's a bonus episode, but this is sort of the last thing we're doing. I think we have some plans to do maybe a finale show when life settles a little bit for all of us. But season three is coming up and that's going to be great. It's going to be very exciting. Lisa, do you want to tell everyone what it's going to be about since you're like, this has been your dream, I think, since the first season. A hundred percent. This is, and I'm glad we do Pirates in the interim. I think it's been a nice, like more fun, light topic, but particularly given some recent leaked uh, government documents, I think this one's going to be great. We are doing the history of the Bible the untold history. I think the first part of season three is going to be the queer history of the Bible. And the second part of season three is going to be the women's history of the Bible. And I just think that that's a really important topic. Elise came on Cult America, this most recent episode that's going to be dropping, I don't know when. And we had intended to talk about America and God in America. And we ended up talking about Roe v. Wade for like an hour. So (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) I will say too, like as a... (laughs) As a very queer woman who was raised Catholic in America and who like knows people who have been kicked out of high school for being gay at like a Southern Baptist high school. Mm. I also feel like there's just like a personal stake in in learning about these things. I know that like this is I feel like a hot topic of conversation. Like if you have religious family members and you're queer and they're like love the sin or hate the sin and you're like here i just want to have this arsenal of all the things in the bible that i can tell you that Mm -hmm. like actually contradict exactly what you're saying like from a like 
educational perspective, I find it fascinating and exciting to shove in your family members' faces. So get ready for that. It's going to be I'm great. I'm very excited for that. I, that's something <laughs> I never personally had to face as someone who grew up atheist. I also, I went to a religious school, but it was very like, it's okay, you're not religious. It's okay. Like our religious education teacher was like, I'm going to teach you about all religion because that's like my job. And if you're not Christian, that's cool. Like, And so I had like a pretty happy, like nice experience of religious people for the most part. But also there's so many badass women in the Bible who like came in and like rescued their towns and all of this stuff. And we are not holding them up. Like all I know of women in the Bible is like Eve, sinner, (laughs) Mary, who was a virgin birth and then Mary Magdalene. And that's like all the women I know. And I know that they're like, I mean, I've had conversations with Elise who's really heavy in the research. I know there were like some badass women in the Bible, just like our like Grace O'Malley's and Shang-Chi's and all of these women that we didn't know about pirates as well. So I'm really excited to find those women from the Bible. I know, I'm definitely excited to learn more. I think every season is like a learning experience for me and Lisa as much as it is for all of you listening as well. And I know there's also some really beautiful queer love stories in the Bible like that I'm excited to dive in and hear more about too. Yeah, it's just gonna be a great season. So we're looking forward to seeing you all next season. You can also subscribe to our Patreon. So. In the meantime, check out our bonus episodes on Patreon. We're going to see you next season. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our season's obviously over, but you can still listen to us. We will be releasing episodes on Our Flag Means Death coming up, which is going to be really fun. I can't wait to talk about it in the context of what we've learned this season. Um, We also have a back catalog, as Ellie said, of our episodes. So look out for that. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweetbitter. Thank you to our new patrons, Kevin and Elise. While season two doesn't come out until October, there's so much work that goes into the planning of it. And we use the Patreon money to pay our audio engineer, to pay our artists, and all of our overheads. And so if you, you know, if you have the means to support us mid-season, please continue to support. Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Rigida, Elise Snore, and Lisa Charlotte in partnership with Three Springs Media. Our audio engineering is by Sarah Gabrielli. Our production assistant is Thea Smith, and our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Thank you to our guests this week, Alex Barker. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website at SweetBitterPodcast.com. We do not have any sea shanties this week since it's a bonus episode, but make sure you re-listen to all of the beautiful shanties that Joshua and Elise produced and wrote over the season. See ya. Bye. Ahoy.